Maria Martinez Keel. And I'm Kayla Branch. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, ahead of what is expected to be a wave of mental health needs because of the pandemic, public schools are facing a shortage of counselors after years of subpar funding. And college sports are in flux. Will we see Oklahoma's teams on the field this fall? Most of us are familiar with the fears associated with returning to school this fall during the COVID-19 pandemic. Students, teachers, and parents worry about getting sick. But lack of structure and finding childcare loom as large problems if schools don't reopen to in-person learning at some point soon. And in the backdrop of that discussion is a potential mental health crisis for young people. The state is looking to guidance counselors to provide help to these students during the pandemic. But Nuria, you wrote an in-depth, moving story about the way this new task will be extremely challenging since school counseling programs have been underfunded for years. So paint us a picture of what school counselors were going through prior to the pandemic. Yeah, so the best way that I can really convey the situation right now is to explain the ratio of students to school counselors. So the American School Counselor Association recommends that states have a ratio of 250 students for every counselor. Um, In Oklahoma, it's a lot higher than that. It's 421 students for every counselor. Um, So that's really the basis of the story. That's the basis of the situation um, because there are some schools that have really high caseloads for counselors and some schools that don't. Um, And so I think in the story you see a little bit of both of counselors who have experienced high caseloads and the struggles that come with that and a counselor who can do everything that is necessary to support her students and be proactive. And she said a big reason that she could create such a model program that's nationally recognized is because she has a low caseload. She only has 290 students um, in, in, in her school that she has to watch out for. Um, the, the, the way that it really impacts school counselors and the way that they can do their jobs is as one counselor told me, it forces them to be reactive when they have a high caseload. So you're basically, another counselor said, you're basically putting out fires all day long because you're just jumping from one student who's in crisis to another one. And you can't do uh, as many of the programs and the small group uh, work and and the classroom lessons and the one-on-one work with other students who aren't in crisis. It's really hard to be able to do all of those things when you have hundreds of students and some of whom are, are in crisis and, and you have to go see those students who are in the most immediate need. Um, whereas if you have a lower caseload, uh, you can do all of those proactive measures. You, there's one counselor I spoke with who does, I think, two classroom sessions a month with every single class in her school, um, and she's teaching them, you know, tips for academic success, study skills, um, teaching them how to regulate their emotions. Um, she can meet one-on-one with kids who maybe aren't having any behavioral problems in school. Uh, they're just showing some signs of maybe anxiety, perfectionism, some maybe some uh, early signal of, of a mental illness that she wants to go ahead and help them work through, um, even though their grades aren't suffering, they're not acting out in class. Um, so that's not the case for a counselor who has 
several hundred students uh, in her caseload or his caseload. They they really just have to. She one counselor compared it to going to the ER. It's like the ER. If you're in the waiting room, you know they're gonna see whoever is in the most immediate medical need. Right. Similar concept where there's a kid who's just totally in crisis. They're gonna go to that student first. Odds are. Um, so just. There's some students, you know, I, I think one one counselor put it the best way where like it doesn't matter if your school has a great school counseling program or a great school counselor if you can never see that counselor. So if you can never see them, then it's really difficult to learn everything that a school counselor can teach you. It's difficult to be able to receive that mental health support. Um, and the pandemic is only making that more challenging as uh a lot of that counseling work is has so far been done remotely since March. Right. And just an outside question, I guess, is this funding from the state level, from the local level? I mean, where is the break to where, um, you know, overall school counselors aren't getting what they need, but also, I mean, you just described a, a disparity. Some schools are making it work and it's working well. And in others, it's it's not working that well. Yeah. So this funding comes from the state funding formula, which is mostly uh, state and local dollars. Um, And so part of uh, what the Oklahoma State Department of Education asked for this year um, in their budget was an additional $19 million to hire. I think it was about 300 more counselors to help lower that ratio. Um, And and obviously COVID-19 hit. Everybody took a funding cut. Nobody's money really increased uh, across the board and state agencies this year. So that request was not uh, granted. Um, But most of that, I don't know how much uh, federal grants really play into the picture, um, but most of that money is going to come from state and local funding sources. Okay. And in your story, you detail just a lot of the existing problems. You know, in general, Oklahoma has very poor outcomes for young people. Uh, so talk about some of those statistics and what the impact is. Yeah, so um, let me look at some of the stats I can share with you. So one thing that I referenced was a report from the CDC that says between 13 and 20% of American children will experience a mental disorder in a given year. Um, And suicide is the second leading cause of death for people aged 10 to 24 in the United States. Um, In Oklahoma specifically, I think more and more people have become aware of this in recent years, um, but I think it bears repeating. Um, We ranked number one in the nation for prevalence of adverse childhood experiences. Um, And for people who don't know what that is, an adverse childhood experience is one of 10 identified traumatic experiences that happens to you before you turn 18. It could be uh, something as common as your parents getting divorced, or it could be more extreme like uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, um, or someone in your house, in your your household growing up, had a substance abuse problem or had a a mental illness. Um, So usually issues of abuse or household dysfunction. And in Oklahoma, a 2017 national survey of children's health found that 30.4% of children in the state experienced two or more of these traumatic experiences. And, And Oklahoma ranked number one in the nation for children who had experienced multiple traumas like this. So 
we've got a population of kids who deal with a lot of traumatic events. We've got low funding, not enough school counselors, and then COVID-19 pandemic kids. So how has the pandemic changed the way counselors can do their jobs and just kind of what is expected of them, what, what people want them to start doing? Yeah, um, one counselor I spoke with, she is pretty involved in the school counseling scene uh, in Oklahoma and nationally. She's on the ASCA board of directors, and she said, you know, there were some school counselors who were told to uh, call students every single day. Um, and, you know, the counselor's like, okay, am I going to call 450 students every day? You know, what kind of help can I have? Um One counselor who works here in Oklahoma City said that she was making at least five Zoom calls a day because she spends, and as is is recommended, she spends most of her time in a normal year working face-to-face with her students. Um, And she said that being visible to them is really important to her and her ability to do her job. And so to facilitate that in a remote environment, she was making a lot of Zoom calls. Uh, Sarah Kirk in in Tulsa said that she was uh, making phone calls to families. I I heard that from other counselors as well. Um, But one thing that was hard for her was getting to speak with kids directly, just having the kid on the phone and not just their parents. Um, You know, counselors were saying they were hearing that some of their kids were feeling really anxious. Um, Some were expressing bouts of anger that probably... um, came from a, a place of anxiety. Um, others were feeling sad or they, you know, they missed their teachers, missed their friends. Um, and then maybe some were okay and, and the counselors just wanted to check in. Um, but, but Sarah said that it was really hard to have an honest uh, conversation like what she would have with students um, in her office at school. So you're seeing a lot of this being done remotely. A lot of the counselors I've spoken with, their districts have since announced that they're going to start the school year virtually, like Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Um, and so they're going to have to continue working from a, a remote environment. Um, and then others are going to go back to school. And they said that they they really aren't sure what emotional condition their students are going to be in once they come back. Um, it's difficult to guess. And Kayla, I want to give you a shout out for pointing me toward this study um, (laughs) that that referenced uh, studies of children from past pandemics um, that showed, you know, 30% of quarantine children showed signs of PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, and their stress levels were four times as high as children who didn't quarantine. So the need could be greater than it ever has been before in these schools. Um, and, and counselors who already have high caseloads uh, might have some difficulty, you know, trying to keep on top of everything. Absolutely. And you mentioned that the you know, State Board of Education had requested um, you know, $19 million additional dollars to hire hundreds of additional counselors that did not pan out. So clearly it is something that authority figures know is a problem. But looking forward, is there anything else being done to help rectify the situation? Yeah, so obviously schools are really encouraged through all of this to put a big emphasis on mental health. Um, 
uh, state school superintendent Joy Hoffmeister has really emphasized trauma-informed ed- education. For the past uh, four, three or four years or so, they've done a lot of professional development with teachers um, over the past three or four years um, with teachers statewide to really educate them about Um, childhood traumas, how that really factors into the classroom. I mean, studies have shown that it is far more difficult to learn and retain information when you're in a a state of of experiencing trauma. Um, And if teachers um, are aware of that, they can help uh, regulate those emotions and bring them back down to a calmer state. And that's where the better uh, better conditions for learning can take place. Um, So they've been focusing on this. um, But now that, you know, this, as one counselor called it, this collective trauma is is happening for everybody. Um, it, it, there are some initiatives that you can try to um, encourage school districts to focus on this. The State Department of Education has encouraged them to really prioritize those needs. Um, the state gave out some incentive grants that maybe help pay for technology and, and other things. And part of that was, you know, we're going to give you some of these grants through the CARES Act. Um, please, we hope you will use some of this money for mental health support for your students. Um, so there are some things here and there that you can do, um, and, and individual school districts can decide to, um, you know, put some of their own money toward that um, and in their time and focus. Uh, we're seeing that in some of the larger school districts especially but you know it's it's difficult to to do that you know one sarah kirk from tulsa said you know it's hard to do trauma-informed education when you don't have the manpower to support that and to hire new counselors it's going to take quite a bit more money than than what's uh, on the budget right now Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Naria, for your reporting. And listeners, if you haven't read the story, I highly recommend it. Uh, definitely go online and check this one out. Naria, thank you. crossover this week college football beat writer scott wright has kindly come on the podcast scott thank you for being here thank you for having me the future of fall college athletics has gotten a lot of attention nationally this week Uh, some major athletic conferences have ruled out a fall season ou and osu's athletic conference the big 12 has not announced a decision yet but initial reports indicate it will continue trying to play football scott let's just get everyone up to speed Um, as of today which conferences and schools will not play this fall and, and why did they come to that decision out of the the major conferences, the Power Five conferences, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 have both uh, suspended their seasons for uh, for the fall, hoping to play in the spring. And still trying to figure out exactly what uh, what they can do there. Um, obviously, that it started with some smaller conferences that uh, that, that canceled their uh, their seasons ahead of uh, ahead of them, and uh, um, you know their those uh, those conferences are uh, are. Um, getting some uh, getting some pushback from some of the the programs, for instance, Nebraska in the Big Ten uh, is uh, is sort of going rogue and uh, and still trying to play football this season. So um, a lot of interesting things going on with it, um, but uh, you know it's it's a really hard 
landscape to try to figure out exactly what might happen and uh and and university presidents and chancellors and athletic directors are are, are trying to do what's best for uh, for everybody involved yeah, and for those who are, are not uh, college football junkies um, or, or just don't follow the sport, Pac-12 is mostly the uh, the West and the Pacific Northwest, uh, basically like the, the whole West Coast. And then uh, Big Ten is a lot of the Midwest schools from Nebraska all the way over to Maryland. Am I accurate in saying that? Just You have wide, wide areas that are saying we're not going to play is it accurate to say there are wide areas that are still saying, yes, we are going to play? And can you kind of give us a landscape of that? Yeah, right now, the, um, you know, the, the Big 12, obviously, this part of the country is is looking toward playing the uh, the Southeastern Conference from from all reports. They're uh, still interested, though they haven't made any any formal announcements. And the uh, the uh, at Atlantic Coast Conference uh, has not made any uh, announcements at this point. Um, we'll see what happens with those in the future. But um, it uh, everybody on in in those areas have been a little slower to react to. Uh, uh, it hasn't just been a, uh, a, a an immediate reaction to what's happened uh, in other parts of the country. So um, we'll see what uh, what comes of that. But um, you know, right now, those uh, particularly the Big Twelve and the SEC uh, are uh, are are more uh, more confident about their ability to to forge ahead and, and play a football season right now. And college football players have started their own campaign saying, we want to play. And, and that in, included some prominent athletes from OU and OSU. So can you tell me about their message and which notable players have gotten behind it? Uh, the the biggest name from, uh, from around here is obviously Chuba Hubbard at Oklahoma State, a returning All-American, a Heisman Trophy candidate. Um, he was joined at, at OSU by his quarterback, Spencer Sanders, and a couple of other guys uh, at, uh, at OU, quarterback Spencer Rattler, center Creed Humphrey, another All-American, um, both, uh, both joined the movement as well. And there's been others since then that have, uh, that have, Posted that hashtag on Twitter, or uh, or posted the uh, the graphic that uh, initially came out um, that uh, that included some of the uh, the for lack of a better term demands of uh, of the players um, wanting better and uh, and broader uh, testing for uh, for COVID nineteen and um, uh, better health protections for them to to make uh, to make this a safe season. Um, they they want to have more of a voice uh, is uh, I think the most important thing that that literally came out of this. They're wanting to uh, develop a, a players association, which uh, as uh, as college athletes, it's a little bit tricky uh, to uh, to determine whether labor laws actually allow them to do that at this point. Because as of right now, they're not paid employees so it's kind of a kind of a, a, a tricky uh, situation uh, as far as that goes but um, it was uh, this all began with a, a group of a dozen really high profile athletes Trevor Lawrence from Clemson being uh, probably the, the most prominent guy in the in the group that all all got together on a uh, on a zoom call on uh, on Sunday and um, 
they talked about what they wanted and what they felt they needed to say and how they needed to be unified in their message. They had had uh, representatives from all five of the major conferences included, and they developed this uh, this list of, of demands that they uh, posted on Sunday night and carried into Monday and really gained a lot of steam, got a lot of backing from coaches as well. So, um it's uh, it was a, a very unique uh, uh, development in in all of this, but it was uh, but it was it was important I think for the players to make sure that their voice was heard. Yeah, and I'm and now I'm already seeing uh, women's college athletes jumping into this movement, saying they also want to play a fall season. Sure. Um, it, now, the debate over football season and, and fall athletics has been closely tied to whether universities can safely reopen for all students and staff, not just student athletes. So how have the reopening plans for colleges maybe influenced whether people perceive sports as a possible option this fall? That's going to be, uh, that's going to be really tricky because, you know, it's uh, at, at one point colleges were saying, well, we're not going to have sports if we can't have all the students back on campus. And now that looks like the most dangerous thing that uh, that that could occur. The most uh, the most uh, chance for uh, everyone to uh, to be spreading the virus. And so, um, you know, athletes to this point have been uh, uh, not necessarily in a bubble the way that that people think of the NBA bubble that uh, that the Thunder is playing in, but they've been uh, secluded to uh, to an extent, and and it's been a uh, a really um, a really protected environment that they're uh, that they're in right now with uh, with proper monitoring and testing and and all of those things and uh, when the full uh, student body returns it's going to be a lot tougher to uh, to monitor and and to protect the athletes from uh, from uh, interacting with other people and uh, and knowing who they're interacting with and and all of those things so the uh, the return of the rest of the students has uh, is, is possibly the uh, the the most uh, scary thing for the uh, for the future of college football right and as student athletes they have to go to class they they right. are part of the campus community um, you know how have colleges and conferences said they could make athletics safe during COVID-19? I know at least football players have been on campus since June, would you say? Um, yeah. yeah. And so if you take football, for example, you have players who crash against each other on every single play and they regularly travel out of state to play other schools. So have schools and conferences given any kind of blueprint for how they believe they can carry out the season safely? Uh, schools are doing what they can uh, in their limited environment. Um, in terms of conferences, they haven't really talked a lot about what uh, you know what they're going to do. There have been some uh, recommendations that have come down from the NCAA, including um, you know testing within uh, within fifty four hours prior to a game and, um, you know, uh, mandatory, uh, mandatory quarantines for, uh, for, for certain players who, uh, who test positive and, and others who are, uh, you know, 
basically contact tracing, you know, interacting with those players. So, um, there've been some, some ideas, but not, uh, not a lot of, of regulations put in, in place at this point. And that's probably the thing that, uh, that is the, the, the most nerve wracking of all, uh, for, uh, for all of this is that there's still so much unknown about what, uh, what a season could look like, what travel is going to look like and, and, uh, and all of those different things. So, um, you see, uh, when you look at, uh, at baseball and the way that things are going for them, um, you know, they tried to, to, to limit travel as much as they could, but you're still having, uh, teams that are, uh, um, you know, that are, are contracting the virus and spreading within their, uh, within their clubhouses and within, the, within their rosters. So, um, it's been a really difficult thing for, for baseball to this point. And, um, you know, college football, uh, has to try to learn from from what other people are doing right now and and figure out the best way to uh to make this a, a possibility if they want to go forward with it yeah and and you know i think maybe part of the reason that certain schools and and organizations are so um they're they're going headfirst towards this, and that's partly I would say because college football is a massive money maker for uh, conferences and athletic departments. Um, just what kind of impact financially do you think we could see if football does not happen? It's it's hugely significant. Uh, football is is the uh, the engine that drives the uh the the entire vehicle that is college uh, college athletics uh it it provides um you know at for instance at, at OU uh the the football program doesn't take any money from the university it if in fact gives money back to the university um and and at OSU uh it's it's very similar in in terms of that but it's it's the it's the money-making machine that makes other sports possible uh, because very few other sports turn a profit. Most of them lose money and that's covered by the money that's made through football. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's really important to the, to the functioning of an athletic department. Um, It's also, it's at the same time, it's a very expensive sport, but it, uh, it, it, what it generates in revenue uh, is is highly important to everything that uh, that the athletic departments do on uh, college campuses all all around the country. Absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, bringing a bit of a sports crossover to the source. We appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me again. my conversation with Scott, the Big 12 announced on Wednesday its intention to move forward with a plan to play football and other sports this fall. The conference also released its COVID-19 protocols. Players in high contact sports such as football, volleyball, and soccer will be tested for COVID-19 three times a week. If a player tests positive for the coronavirus, he or she has to undergo a series of tests before returning to competition. That includes an EKG, a blood test, an echocardiogram, and a cardiac MRI. The conference is still seeking to have non-conference games, 
But what we do know is that games between Big 12 teams, including OU and OSU, are scheduled to begin on September 26th. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.